Chapter 1 of Wilder's Hand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Wilder's Hand by J. Sheridan Lafanu. Chapter 1 Relating How I Drove Through the Village of Gillingdon with Mark Wilder's Letter in My Valise. It was late in the autumn, and I was skimming along through a rich English country in a post-chase among tall hedgerows gilded, like all the landscape, with the slanting beams of sunset. The road makes a long and easy descent into the little town of Gillingdon, and down this we were going at an exhilarating pace, and the jingle of the vehicle sounded like sled bells in my ears, and its swaying and jerking were pleasant and lifelike. I fancy I was in one of those moods which, under similar circumstances, I sometimes experience still, a semi-narcotic excitement, silent but delightful, an undulating landscape with a homely farmstead here and there, and plenty of old English timber scattered grandly over it, extended mistily to my right. On the left, the road is overtopped by masses of noble forest. The old park of Brandon lies there more than four miles from end to end. These masses of solemn and discolored verdure, the faint but splendid lights, and long filmy shadows, the slopes and hollows, my eyes wandered over them all, with that strange sense of unreality, and that mingling of sweet and bitter fancy, with which we revisit a scene familiar in very remote and early childhood, and which has haunted a long interval of maturity and absence, like a romantic reverie. As I looked through the chase windows, every moment presented some group or outline or homely object, for years forgotten, and now with a strange surprise how vividly remembered and how affectionately greeted. We drove by the small old house at the left with its double gable and pretty grass garden and trim yews and modern lilacs and labrinums, backed by the grand timber of the park. It was the parsonage, and old bachelor Dr. Crewe, the rector in my nonage, still stood in memory at the door, in his black shorts and gaiters, with his hands in his pockets, and a puckered smile on his hard, ruddy countenance, as I approached. He smiled little on others, I believe, but always kindly upon me. This general liking for the children and instinct of smiling on them is one source of the delightful illusions which make the remembrance of early days so like a dream of paradise, and give us, at starting, such false notions of our value. There was a little fair-haired child playing on the ground before the steps as I whirled by. The old rector had long passed away, the shorts, gaiters and smile, a phantom, and nature, who had gathered in the past, was providing for the future. The pretty mill road running up through Redmond's Dell, dank and dark, with tall romantic trees, was left behind in another moment, and we were now traversing the homely and antique street of the little town, with its queer shops and solid steep-roofed residences. Up Church Street, I contrived to peep at the old gray tower where the chimes hung, and as we turned the corner, a glance at the Brandon Arms, how very small and low that palatial hostelry of my earlier recollections had grown. There were new faces at the door. It was only two and twenty years ago, and I was then but eleven years old. A retrospect of a score of years or so, at three and thirty, is a much vaster affair than a much longer one at fifty. The whole thing seemed like yesterday, and as I write, I open my eyes and start and cry. Can it be twenty, five and twenty? Ay, by Jove, five and thirty years since then? How my days have flown! And I think, when another such yesterday shall have arrived, where shall I be? The first ten years of my life were longer than all the rest put together, and I think would continue to be so were my future extended to an ante span. 
It is the first ten that emerge from nothing and commencing in a point. It is during them that consciousness, memory, all the faculties grow, and the experience of sense is so novel, crowded, and astounding. It is this beginning at a point and expanding to the immense disk of our present range of sensuous experience that gives to them so prodigious and illusory perspective and makes us, in childhood, measuring futurity by them, form so wild and exaggerated an estimate of the duration of human life. But I beg your pardon. My journey was from London. When I had reached my lodgings, after my little excursion up the Rhine, upon my table there lay, among the rest, one letter. There generally is an overdue bundle, which I viewed with suspicion. I could not in the least tell why. It was a broad-faced letter of bluish complexion, and had made inquisition after me in the country, had asked for me at Queen's Forkston, and vised by my cousin, had presented itself at the Friars in Shropshire, and thence proceeded by Sir Harry's direction, there was the autograph, to Norton Hall, thence again to Ilchester, whence my fiery and decisive old aunt sent it straight back to my cousin with a whisk of her pen which seemed to say, How the plague can I tell where the puppy is? Tis your business, sir, not mine, to find him out. And so my cousin dispatched it to my headquarters in town, where from the table it looked up in my face with a broad red seal, and a countenance scarred and marred all over with various postmarks, erasures, and transverse directions, the scars and furrows of disappointment and adventure. It had not a good countenance, somehow. The original lines were not prepossessing. The handwriting I knew as one sometimes knows a face without being able to remember who the plague it belongs to, but still with an unpleasant association about it. I examined it carefully and laid it down unopened. I went through half a dozen others and recurred to it, and puzzled over its exterior again, and again postponed what I fancied would prove a disagreeable discovery. And this happened every now and again, until I had quite exhausted my budget, and then I did open it, and looked straight to the signature. Mark Wilder! I exclaimed, a good deal relieved. Mark Wilder! Yes, Master Mark could not hurt me. There was nothing about him to excite the least uneasiness. On the contrary, I believe he liked me as well as he was capable of liking anybody, and it was now seven years since we had met. I have often since thought upon the odd sensation with which I hesitated over his unopened letter, and now, remembering how the breaking of that seal resembled in my life the breaking open of a portal through which I entered a labyrinth, or rather a catacomb, where for many days I groped and stumbled, looking for light, and was, in a manner lost, hearing strange sounds, witnessing imperfectly strange sights, and at last arriving at a dreadful chamber. A sad sort of superstition steals over me. I had then been his working junior in the cause of Wilder versus Trustees of Brandon, minor Dorcas Brandon, his own cousin. There was a complicated cousinship among these Brandons, Wilders, and Lakes, inextricable intermarriages, which five years ago, before I renounced the bar, I had at my fingers' ends, but which had now relapsed into haze. There must have been some damnable taint in the blood of the common ancestor, a spice of the insane and the diabolical. They were an ill-conditioned race. That is to say, every now and then there emerged a miscreant with a pretty evident vein of madness. There was Sir Jonathan Brandon, for instance, who ran his own nephew through the lungs in a duel fought in a proxism of sentient jealousy, and afterwards shot his coachman dead upon the box through his coach window, and finally died in Vienna, whether he had absconded, of a pike thrust received from a sentry in a brawl. The Wilders had not much to boast of, even in contrast with that wicked line. They had produced their madmen and villains, too, and there had been frequent intermarriages, not very often happy, 
There had been many lawsuits, frequent disinheritings, and even worse doings. The Wilders of Brandon appear very early in history, and the Wilder Arms, with their legend Resurgum, stands in bold relief over the great door of Brandon Hall. So there were Wilders of Brandon, and Brandons of Brandon. In one generation, a Wilder, ill-using his wife and hating his children, would cut them all off and send the estate bounding back again to the Brandons. The next generation or two would amuse themselves with a lawsuit, until the old Brandon type reappeared in some bachelor brother or uncle with a Jezebel on his left hand and an attorney on his right, and presto, the estates were back again with the Wilders. A statement of title is usually a dry affair, but that of the dynasty of Brandon Hall was a truculent romance. Their very wills were spiced with the devilment of the testators and abounded in insinuations and even language which were scandalous. Here is Mark Wilder's letter. Dear Charles, of course you have heard of my good luck and how kind poor Dickie, from whom I never expected anything, proved at last. It was a great windfall for a poor devil like me, but, after all, it was only right, for it ought never to have been his at all. I went down and took possession on the fourth, the tenants very glad, and so they might well be, for, between ourselves, Dickie, poor fellow, was not always pleasant to deal with. He let the roof fall out of repair, and committed waste beside in timber he had no right to in life, as I am told, but that don't signify much. Only the house will cost me a pretty penny to get it into order and furnish. The rental is five thousand a year and some hundreds, and the rents can be got up a bit, so Larkin tells me. Do you know anything of him? He says he did business for your uncle once. He seems a clever fellow, a bit too clever, perhaps, and was too much master here, I suspect, in poor Dickie's reign. Tell me all you can make out about him. It is a long time since I saw you, Charles. I'm grown brown and great whiskers. I met poor Dominic. What an ass that chap is, but he did not know me till I introduced myself, so I must be a good deal changed. Our ship was at Malta when I got the letter. I was sick of the service, and no wonder, a lieutenant, and there likely to stick all my days. Six months last year on the African coast watching slavers, think of that. I had a long yarn from the Vicomte, advice and that sort of thing. I do not think he is a year older than I, but takes airs because he's a trustee but I only laugh at trifles that would have riled me once. So I wrote him a yarn in return, and drew it uncommon mild. And he has been useful to me, and I think matters are pretty well arranged to disappoint the kind intention of good Uncle Wilder, the brute. He hated my father, but that was no reason to persecute me, and I but an infant almost when he died, damn him. Well, you know, he left Brandon with some charges to my cousin Dorcas. She is a superbly fine girl. Our ship was at Naples when she was there two years ago, and I saw a good deal of her. Of course, it was not to be thought of then, but matters are quite different, you know, now, and the Vicomte, who is a very sensible fellow in the main, saw it at once. You see, the old brute meant to leave her a life estate, but it does not amount to that, though it won't benefit me, for he settled that when I die, it shall go to his right heirs. That will be to my son, if I ever have one. So Miss Dorcas must pack and turn out whenever I die, that is, if I slip my cable first. Larkin told me this, and I took an opinion, and found it is so and the Vicomte, seeing it, agreed the best thing for her, as well as me, would be we should marry. She's a wide-awake young lady, and nothing the worse for that. I'm a bit that way myself, and so very little courtship has sufficed. She is a splendid beauty, and when you see her, you'll say any fellow might be proud of such a bride, and so I am. And now, dear Charlie, you have it all. It will take place somewhere about the 24th of next month, and you must come down by the 1st, if you can. Don't disappoint. I want you for best man, maybe. And besides, 
I would like to talk to you about some things they want me to do in the settlements, and you were always a long-headed fellow, so pray don't refuse. Dear Charlie, ever most sincerely, your old friend, Mark Wilder. P.S. I stay at the Brandon Arms in the town until after the marriage, and then you can have a room at the hall and capital shooting when we return, which will be in a fortnight after. I can't say that Wilder was an old friend, but he was certainly one of the oldest and most intimate acquaintances I had. We had been for nearly three years at school together, and when his ship came to England, met frequently, and twice, when he was on leave, we had been for months together under the same roof, and had for some years kept up a regular correspondence, which first grew desultory, and finally, as manhood supervened, died out. The plain truth is, I did not very much like him. Then there was that beautiful, apathetic Dorcas Brandon, where is the laggard so dull as to experience no pleasing flutter at his heart in anticipation of meeting a perfect beauty in a country house? I was romantic, like every other youngish fellow who is not a premature curmudgeon, and there was something indefinitely pleasant in the consciousness that, although a betrothed bride, the young lady still was fancy-free, not a bit in love. It was but a marriage of convenience, with mitigations, and so there hovered, in my curiosity, some little flicker of egotistic romance, which helped to rouse my spirits and spur me on to action. End of chapter 1